pray. Good morning. Glad to be here with you all again this week. I'd like to welcome all our visitors, people watching online. Very thankful uh, to be with you all this morning. Uh, just to recap a little bit, uh, we have been studying, we've been going through the book of Samuel kind of chapter by chapter, maybe a, little, a couple of chapters at a time, and just seeing how these words that are kind of ancient in a lot of ways still speak to us today in 2022. Last week, we talked about maybe a foreign word that maybe you're only familiar with inside church or maybe Christmas time, this idea of Ebenezer, right, this stone of help. We talked last week about how Samuel uh, uh, was able to pray on behalf of the Israelites. And because the Israelites were actually acting like the people of God, they turned their hearts to God, they poured out their soul, their spirit to God, they were able to do great works. And they said, God, or to, they said to Samuel, please continue to pour out for us. And the Israelites were victorious that day. And at that point, Samuel said, this is our Ebenezer, this is our stone of help. Why? Because thus far, the Lord has been with us. And we talked last week about how sometimes in our lives we have a difficult time remembering all the times God has shown up for us. Time we actually have these different stones of help in our lives. The people, the things, the experience that we have, the different stones of help, the different memories of where God has been with us to that point, we often forget. And it should be as easy as breathing air or drinking water or eating food for us to remember that God is always with us. But as human beings, we recognize that sometimes our memories fail us. And it's very, very important for us to have those Ebenezers, those memories, those memorials as to what God has been up to and what he is doing in our lives. So uh, just, to, just to kind of debrief you on where we are with Israel, right? The people of God are acting like the people of God. That's a very, very good thing. But since they are people, they have their peaks and they definitely have their valleys. And today... We're going to make camp a little bit inside of a valley, okay? So if you're with us, please be in 1 Samuel chapter 8. We're going to read here from verse 1. When Samuel grew old, he appointed his sons as Israel's leaders. The name of his firstborn was Joel, and the name of his second was Abijah. And they served at Beersheba. But his sons did not follow his ways. They turned aside after dishonest gain and accepted bribes and perverted justice. Uh-oh. I'm hearing an echo. Are you hearing the same echo that I'm, that I'm hearing? If you've been with us in 1 Samuel, we were introduced to a very similar situation. And, if, and like I always say, if something reminds you of something else, it's probably supposed to. And here we have a very similar representation as what was happening early on in 1 Samuel with Eli and his scoundrel sons. Right? Remember them, Hophni and Phinehas. They were scoundrels. They were doing very similar things. Some other devious things were being done, right, uh, Eli's sons. But I find it interesting that Samuel has a similar kind of problem. And this isn't what the sermon's about today, but I know we have a lot of parents in here today, maybe grandparents in here saying, if these kids are brought up in the high priest's house, how on earth are they turning out this way? And how on earth am I going to stand a chance against today's battles? Well, my response is that parenting is hard. Okay, that's, that's kind of my response to this. And no matter what you do, no matter all the good things that you do and try to put into your kids, at the end of the day, guess what? They're not robots with a USB that you can import whatever data you want into them, right? They're human beings. They're going to make mistakes. And that just happens. 
right? Nod your heads if you're with me. You've had a mistake in your life for a time or two. And sometimes as parents, we take that on and we want to wear that burden. But we saw it with Eli and now we're seeing it again with Samuel. But I think there's a little bit of a difference here. Uh, Samuel's sons are evil, uh, but there's a little bit of a difference between... Because what I saw with Eli was that over and over again, the theme for him was that Eli is blind, right? Not only was he physically losing his sight, but he was blind to what was going on around. To remember, when he found Hannah praying in the temple, he thought that she was drunk. He's like, hey, lady, get out of my place because you are drunk, right? No, he had never seen someone pour themselves out to God like that before. He was blind to her spiritual nature. He was blind to the things that his sons were doing around him, right? He's blind to the needs of his own people. But when we see Samuel, I don't think he struggles with that same problem. Yes, his sons are not following in his ways, but Samuel has never lost connection with God, okay? Even though his sons have chosen a different path, Samuel still seems to be connected to God, We should see the relationship with Samuel and his sons as kind of like a micro version of God and Israel. You follow me a little bit here? We talk about the people having their peaks and their valleys, right? And even though they have a loving father who's trying to make every possible effort to make them have a good life and to follow God's ways, the kids still find a way to not do what dad says. And that's kind of the story of Israel, right? That's kind of the story of what Israel goes through over and over again. Yes, they're God's people, but time and time again, they show themselves to be just people over and over again. And so, yes, the story of Eli and his sons is very similar to Samuel and his sons, but there's going to be a little bit of a twist here, and we're going to continue reading here, beginning in verse 4. So all the elders of Israel, excuse me, a little bit of a, what did you call that, a voice crack? Uh, So all the elders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel at Ramah. They said to him, you are old and your sons do not follow your ways. Now appoint a king to lead us, such as all the other nations have. But when they said, give us a king to lead us, this displeased Samuel. So he prayed to the Lord. Okay. Like I said, the people of Israel were great last chapter. They're not so great this chapter. They come to Samuel with two very, very pressing things they want to tell him. You are old, Samuel. Oh, man. That's frustrating. (laughs) Right? Because if you're reading, if you were to sit down and read through 1 Samuel, you're seeing how many things, how many good things Samuel did. And then all of a sudden, Samuel's old. And all of a sudden... The people don't really want to listen to him. All of a sudden, he's old, and because you're old and, you're, and your kids don't follow your ways, appoint us a king, give us a king. But if you're like me, you're kind of reading between the lines here. It's not really about Samuel being old, is it? This is kind of like what we, te- we, we call today, uh, um, if, you, if, if you want to fire somebody, you have to have a reason to fire somebody. Right? I forget what that's called, but uh, yeah, yeah, a cause, right? You have to have a cause to, to fire somebody. It seems to me that the people of Israel are trying to say, since you're old and your kids are bad, give us a king. Like they're trying to cover themselves so they don't get in trouble with God, I guess. I don't know what it is. But really what they want is a king. Why do they want a king? Because they want to be like everybody else. That is such an odd thing for us to read. And it's so funny. 
because people aren't that different, right? That's kind of the common theme from 1 Samuel I keep seeing over and over again. People haven't changed all that much. So they say, you are old, your kids don't follow your ways, get a king. And what I find really, really interesting about this is that Samuel doesn't care that he's called old. Samuel doesn't care that they're really calling out him and his parenting skills or the actions of his kids. Why is Samuel upset? He said, I'm upset because they said, give us a king to lead us. That's what's upsetting to Samuel. Because God says this to him, they aren't betraying you, right? Verse 7, and the Lord told him, listen to all the people that are saying to you, it is not you they have rejected, but they have rejected me as their king. And that's why I think that this is a big difference between Eli and Samuel. Yes, Eli kind of failed as a father. His blindness kind of corrupted his ability to lead in any capacity whatsoever. But to me, I see Samuel and God so connected because they're able to have this conversation. And God says, listen to all the people. They're not rejecting you. You've done all you can do. They're rejecting me as their king. They're rejecting God as their king. People do not change. Verse 7. And the Lord told him, listen to all the people. They're saying to you, it is not you they have rejected but they have rejected me as their king, as they have done from the day I had brought them up out of Egypt until this day, forsaking me and serving other gods. So they are doing to you. Now listen to them. But warn them solemnly and let them know what the king who will reign over them will claim as his rights. And then God goes in to talk about how your sons will fight in his armies, your daughters will be bakers, perfumers, they will be servants at his house. All the good things that you have, all the good fruits of your vine, all the choice wine will be his. All the choice harvest will be his. All of that is going to come to fruition once this king that you want so badly is in charge of you. Is that what you want? I find this very interesting because after Samuel tells them all the things that God says to him, this is their response. But the people refused to listen to Samuel. No, they said, we want a king over us. Then we will be like all the other nations with a king to lead us and go out before us and fight our battles. That's got to be frustrating to hear if you're Samuel. That's got to be frustrating to hear if you're God because they think that they have it right. Again, you should see kind of this father-son mentality, almost like the prodigal father and the prodigal son story playing out, right? Where the son says, I want it this way and whatever you say or do is not going to change my mind because you're definitely wrong, dad. This relationship between Samuel and his kids is the exact relationship we see play out between God and the people of Israel. And guess what? Between God and the people of our time today. Even though we are God's people, we want to say that we got it. We understand what we're getting ourselves into. But the thing is, is that you might be sitting there and say, okay, but Jimmy, don't they have to give sacrifices to God anyway? Don't they have to sacrifice their choice grain and their choice you know, livestock and give it over to God? Yes, they do, but they're not doing it to man, right? Serving man will always be different than serving God. Serving man will always be different than serving God because guess what man do over and over again? They disappoint you, and also men tend to die. 
No matter what king you appoint, that king is going to disappoint you and that king is also going to die. But you are the people of Israel. Your king is God. But in this moment, the people cannot see that because they want a king so that they can be just like everybody else. They want a king to go before them and to fight their battles. And since you guys are all students of the Bible and you've been great listeners every single Sunday, you're thinking of all the times God has already gone before, gone before them and fought their battles. You're saying, how stupid can these people be? I don't know if I'm allowed to say stupid up here. But how stupid can these people be that God has gone before them? Why do they want a man in this position? It's because we are so nearsighted. It's because we can't see what God sees And this is just the reality that they're choosing to believe in at the moment. This is their reality. This has to be truth. Um, I already read this, so I am good to go on. Excuse me. This is a guy I'm going to talk about in a second. But I want you to have all that in in mind. Uh, But if you're familiar, I I talk about Malcolm Gladwell quite a bit. Um, He has this book called Blink. It's, It's been out for some time now. And the entire book is about this idea of quick decision-making and how people make decisions quickly and, and assess situations fast. He has different examples in there. He talks about um, this idea of thin slicing is the term that he uses. And it's the ability to assess a situation and respond quickly. Uh, you think about athletes, uh, the world's greatest athletes who are going out there, and whether it be a running back who, who gets the ball and he has to see this tiny window of opportunity to slide between these massive 300-pound guys on either side and not be tackled by the 300-pound guy on the other side, right? The split-second decision-making he has to make to make that hole and to make the cut and to make a touchdown or whatever it might be. You think about uh, a lot of times teachers are the best thin slicers out there, I think, because if the best teachers in the world, what they're able to do is not just teach a subject, but as they're teaching a subject, respond to their students in the way they need to be responded to. Maybe you've had a teacher like that in your life where you've walked into class one day and you haven't said a word, but the teacher knows how you're feeling and they respond to it. It might be something tiny, might be something small, insignificant to anybody else, but the teacher who knows and loves you sees that and says, okay, there's something off about them today. I need to talk to them after class. And there's so many examples I could give you, and I highly recommend this book, Blink. Um, but this idea of thin slicing is very, very important, and it helps us a lot. You think about all the times where maybe you're in a, in a, a motor a vehicle accident, a possible accident, and the car in front of you stops, and you make a split-second decision. It's all those over and over, these patterns that you recognize through your lives to make correct decisions, and they serve us very well a lot of the time. But sometimes they don't. Our split-second decisions don't always serve us a lot of the time, and I introduce you to the problem, okay? This guy looks kind of like a Muppet, uh, but his name is Warren Harding. He was a president, and um, he's considered one of the worst presidents ever, okay? And if you come up to me afterwards and say, Jimmy, actually, this president was worse, I don't want to have that conversation, okay? (laughs) I promise I'm not opening up that. I promise you I won't talk about it. I will walk away. Uh, but Warren Harding, uh, it's called the Warren, Warren Harding error is how Malcolm Gladwell talks about it because this guy was literally elected president because he looked presidential. Because he was over six feet tall, he has very, very striking features. He's a little bit of an older man in this picture, but as a young man, very, very handsome, very athletic, very charming, and he was always 
a head taller than everybody else in the room. And if you listen to the book or read the book, I highly recommend it. Uh, but basically, this guy went from each step in the presidential process going beyond each person because he just looked more presidential than the guy before him all the way up to the point he was actually elected. And once he was in office, he's pretty miserable, okay? He's a pretty miserable candidate for president. But what I'm getting at is that sometimes the right guy seems like the right guy but isn't actually the right guy. Because you look at him, it's like, that guy definitely seems like he's important. But just because you look a certain way doesn't mean you are a certain way. And the thing I'm getting at is that people are overly infatuated with tall people. Rich Mason is one of the candidates that I think of as just the person I'm infatuated with who's very tall, right? Uh, But our entire society is infatuated with tall people. Did you know that 58% of CEOs for 500 Fortune 500 companies in the United States are six feet or taller. 58%. Compare that to the 15% of people in the United States who are actually six feet or taller. There seems to be a weird, you know, disparity there. Why are half of CEOs six feet or taller, but only 15% of people in the United States six feet or taller? That seems odd because people are infatuated with tall people is what I'm getting at. You see a tall person and you just assume that they're built for it. I don't know what it is. We are just ready to accept tall people as our leaders. Don't listen to Rich Mason. He will make you do crazy things. Um, But sometimes this idea of thin slicing really does help us, okay? Like I'm talking about in car accidents where we avoid these things. But in situations like this, when someone seems to be the right person, that doesn't always mean they are, especially tall people, okay? And I bring that up because the exact thing happens to the people of Israel here, okay? Kish had a son named Saul, as handsome as a young man, as could be found anywhere in Israel, and he was a head taller than anyone else. If if, if Saul died that day, I wonder if that would be on his tombstone, right? He was pretty and he was tall. He was pretty and he was tall. This is the guy that we're eventually going to learn is going to be the king of Israel. And I bring up this Warren Harding era, excuse me, error for a reason. I bring up this thin slicing error for a reason because this man is basically presented and God said, that's the guy. That's the guy that they are wanting in their minds as they're picturing a king to go out into battle for them, to fight their battles. He seems like the right guy for them. Very important caveat there, for them. Because God was their king. God was the one fighting their battles, doing all these things on their behalf. But they want a king. And in their minds, this is the exact type of person they want to have on their side. The guy who's pretty and the guy who's tall. Here's your poster child, Israel. Take him. But this is my favorite part of Saul. This is how Saul kind of stumbles into his leadership. Now the donkeys belonging to Saul's father. And Kish said to his son Saul, take one of the servants with you and go look for the donkey. And in pursuit of Saul looking for his father's donkeys, he's going from town to town and he eventually goes to the town where Samuel is. And God says, 
and who's going to lead Israel. And so while Saul was in pursuit of his donkey, Israel found theirs. They found donkey. And I only say that half kidding because God has a sense of humor in this way that this is exactly who Israel wanted to lead them. They wanted the guy who seemed the right way, who seemed to have all the things that they wanted like everybody else. Stack up our king against your king. This is who we want to be leading us. And, and, and just the error in their ways is, is how Saul even got to be in the place where Samuel found him, searching for his donkey. So my question is, how do we fall for a similar trap today? And the trap I'm talking about is what Israel is falling into, searching for something other than God to fulfill their needs. How do we fall for this similar trap today? There's two ways I think we do this, probably way more, but two this morning, is that one, we find comfort in perceived power. We like to find refuge in the things that we think are going to sustain us, okay? And I'm going to read this. This is very, very familiar, I'm sure, but Colossians 1, 15 and following. The sun is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation, for in him all things were created things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible. Whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead, so that in everything he might have the supremacy. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed. Excuse me, I, I this typo. So, can we say amen if we believe that's true power, please? I got tired of hearing myself say all things over and over and over again, but what this is trying to emphasize is that over all things, God has all power. And if you believe that's truth, I want you to nod your heads like this, okay? But the problem is, everybody nodding your head in here is also tied up in all the power the world can give you as well. There's plenty of people in this room, I'm not going to name names, but there's plenty of people in this room that take the formats to hold up human beings as their source of power. You argue over people and positions and power and authority. You lose friends. You say crazy things to one another, and it's not okay. When we get so caught up in the things of this world, when we get so caught up in the power structures of this world, we're throwing Colossians 1, 15 through 20 out the window. We're no longer saying God is all power over all creation. We're saying whatever elected official I support, they're powerful. Guess what that person is going to do? They're going to die, and they're going to be forgotten. Know who's not going to die, and know who's not going to... Actually, guess what? Jesus actually did die. But what did he do? He transcended death itself and showed that over all things, over death itself, triumph, and that is actual power. So why are we so upset about the powers and beings of this world? And again, if you come up and talk to me about politics after this, I'm going to be upset. <laughs> because at the end of the day, this is the power that I want to believe in. 
This is the power that I want to serve. This is the power that I'm going to say, I am standing behind this. You can have your human being. I promise they're going to die. We find so much comfort in perceived power. And, and honestly, it's not just the, the higher-ups, you know, the people that we elect to these offices. It's a lot of times even just in our social, struct- social structures we make for ourselves. How can I even be perceived to have more power? It works on so many different levels. But when we actually submit to the real power and real authority in this world, I think our perspective tends to change a little bit. All of a sudden, the people that we're so frustrated about don't have the power to frustrate us anymore. Because God is the ultimate power that we should be surrendering to, not human beings. The second thing and this is a little bit different. So we, we find comfort in this perceived power, but we also allow sometimes the church to become our king. Now, pause, don't get, don't, just don't get ahead of me real quick. But sometimes we allow the church and the workings of the church to dominate how we live and how we think. And what I mean by that is sometimes people will get mad at me or people will get mad at the leadership because they're not doing what you want them to do. We're just people. We're going to die. We're going to be forgotten. And yes, you can be frustrated and you can be upset that we're not doing necessarily what you want us to do. But I want this morning to say, I want to empower you to do what you feel God is calling you to do and not rely on the leadership to do it. And I'm not trying to say that to pass the buck saying Jimmy doesn't want to work, Jimmy doesn't want to do this. No, I want to be beside you doing these things. I want to be beside you extending the kingdom. But it's not about the church stopping you from doing anything or the church not doing this, the the church not doing that. It's about you saying, how can I be the church and go out and do something positive for the community and not letting something stop you along the way? And I bring this up. We started by reading this. And just to give a little context to this scripture, um, Jesus is being taken to task because he's forsaking the Sabbath once again. I want to actually get there. Excuse me, I don't have it marked. Um, For forsaking the Sabbath again, he does this quite often. And I'm just going to read this context so that we're all on the same page. Verse 16. So because Jesus was doing these things on the Sabbath the Jewish leaders began to persecute him. In his defense, Jesus said to them, my father is always at his work to this very day, and I too am working. For this reason, they tried all the more to kill him. Not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. And here we are. Jesus gave him this answer. Very truly, I tell you, the son can do nothing by himself. He can do only what he sees his father doing. Because whatever the father does the son does also. For the father loves the son and shows him all he does. Yes, and he will show him even greater works than these so that you will be amazed. Jesus is saying, I don't care what day of the week it is. I'm going to continually lean on what the father is guiding me to do. I have to be connected to the father in order to do, to do good works. I have to be in prayer in relationship with the Father so that I can do what he's called me to do. It doesn't matter what day it is. The Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath, right? And sometimes I think we even allow the church structure to stop us from doing something 
that we feel called to do. I want to empower you this morning to not let that be the way it is. Because Israel is falling for the trap to say, we have to be like everybody else. We need a king so that we can be just like everybody else, so that we can do great things and win our battles, and he can go before us, and we want to be so awesome and great. But it's like, you are the people of God. You don't need a king. You are the people of God, and we do have a king. And when we say that Jesus is our king, don't allow the church and the the structures to be a reason for you not to do something God is calling you to do. This is just a moment to just say, allow the Spirit to speak to you and guide you in different ways that you might be afraid to experience right now. But don't be afraid of where the Spirit is leading you to go. Let's pray. God, I thank you for this time. I thank you for giving us an opportunity to look and see how this ver- these, these chapters in 1 Samuel are still affecting us today. God, help us to recognize that you are the ultimate power and that you are the ultimate authority in our lives, no matter what anybody says or does. God, help us to make that a reality in our lives. Help us to live that out. And God, even sometimes the church can seem like barriers for whatever reason. We can be like Israel and say, we need to be like everybody else, and we need to have these structures and do all these things so that we can be like everybody else. But God, empower us to be the light in this world that you've called us to be. Help us to not be afraid. Help us to ask for help, really, to lean on one another in this community that you've given us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. If you have any needs, we want to invite you to come forward. If you want to be baptized, if you want to study, if you have something on your heart that you want to share, whatever it is, we invite you to come forward. But if you don't want to come forward, we do invite you to just to talk to somebody here today. Maybe not even here, but just talk to somebody today as we stand and sing.